Welcome to The Margins, a podcast that features a couple of guys talking about the business of technology and the technology of business. I'm Ron John Roy, founder of The Edge Group. Uh, I'm John Druk, currently a student at NYU's Technology MBA program. So today we're going to be talking about content that's created by machines. The key term for the day is the uncanny valley. The term was coined in 1970 by Masahiro Mori and describes our strange revulsion towards things that appear nearly human but are just not quite right. Think of that distasteful reaction towards a creepy-looking robot or when you hear audio read in an overly artificial voice. So this is becoming a significant part of our lives as we welcome Alexa and voice assistants into our homes, start encountering AI-generated articles and videos in our news feeds, and of course, the robots, always the robots. So John, Google Duplex has been all over the news. They had this big demo out in Mountain View where they called, I believe it was a hair salon and a restaurant, and had a fake phone call. They had a machine talking to a person, but this machine managed to add inflections, ahs, ums, likes, and convince the other person, supposedly, that it was a real person on the other end. So as an engineer, what makes Google Duplex interesting to you? And then also, and potentially more importantly, is it even real or possible right now? Okay, so you have two questions. You know, what does it mean to you as an engineer and is it real? So I'll start with the second one. Is it real and or possible? Um, so there has been some kind of uh, you know debate about this. There was like an Axios story, uh, and then John Gruber of Tech Daring Fireball have been all about this. So the main crux is the of the suspicion is that uh, people are worried. For example, the Axios believe that the conversation did not actually take place as it was like presented, right? So what they did was they called actual like couple of hair salons and restaurants, and they noticed that people always answer with. Hi, this is like Mike's place. Like, hi, this is like Julia Hair Salon. Um, and like those things are missing in the conversation. So, hey, like what was presented was not real. You know, I've listened to even before all this was like announced, uh, Google has been pretty public about the capabilities of their uh, text to speech technology. And like that stuff has been incredibly real for years. The other part, like whether or not a human and robot can interact this way, you know, like can it like carry over like context? or kind of like handle the edge, edge case, uh, that all sounds hard, but like not impossible. Uh, going back to it, I do think that it was real in the sense that we have technology that is there. Is it possible? I think you know, what is presented at like these demos are not real, like the famous cases, like when Steve Jobs introduced the iPhone, they had all these like tricks that they played. They had these like very scripted demos where like he had to tap on a certain thing because otherwise it would crash. What makes is like interesting, like obviously there are like multiple things. Like I was not as impressed about the uh, like the voice part as I was about how it just seemed to be able to handle like a conversation in a like a natural way. Of what I mean that is like you know like the person like the hair salon case, like the person asks seems like a very question that I would not have expected, and like the thing like handles it very properly. So I think that part of it is quite interesting. And like now that Google at least like feels comfortable there, like, hey, like we can demo this as soon as like if they can like demo this, they must have a way to kind of like they must have planned to like deploy this on like the production scale, not on the voice side, but actually like on the conversation side. What I would kind of like make people maybe like think about this is like these technology companies make these things sound really far fetched. To some sense, it's true. Like this is not technology that's like widely available today, 
But how fast these things kind of become publicly available is also uncanny. Speaking, you know, keeping on with our terms. Uh, what I mean by that is, you know, like what is this like amazing technology today? Only available to Google, only available to like, a couple of companies. I suspect will become just like some library that you you know download to your application, right? At least you know the like, voice generation part will become much available to like some guy who wants to use like a code from like GitHub. It is kind of like worthwhile to think about like like this stuff that seems like really hard right now will become trivial five years from today. And then, you know, like to my engineer mind, it just makes me think, man, like five years from today, if I can just like import that text-to-speech library, like what what cool stuff I could do. But obviously, you know, there are other like downsides. So what are those downsides? I mean, that would fundamentally change some large percentage of conversations that are had on a day-to-day basis. I mean, any, obviously customer service is kind of the easy one that everyone thinks about, but how many different types of human-to-human conversations would that replace? You know, like, I mean, like, two minds about this definitely replaces, like, very cumbersome stuff that, like, no one likes to have. Let's, like, take the case of, like, a restaurant. There are a lot of places that do not have, like, open table integration. You can't, like, book a place to your, like, phone. Like, you actually have to call someone because, like, they do not want like random people to just like come in and like do this. So Google is kind of like sidestepping those people, right? They're kind of bringing those people to the digital worlds, you know, like dragging them, kicking and screaming to the digital world. But the other part of it is, you know, like I do actually have a cognitive science degree rather than a computer science degree, even though I worked as a software engineer. And like one thing that you always kind of hear about is humans are really kind of like good at these, like picking up these like signals, like these are, you know, like you're talking to someone, like someone's like not listening to you or like someone changes their tone, you're really good at like picking up these signals. But part of it is that you actually develop those skills over time. Like think about the case that where you are replacing a lot of the human conversation with these sort of like auto-generated conversations. You know, like when I was like listening to the demo, like my first impression is like, whoa, that's so cool. But then you kind of like feel like slight like tingling in the back of your head. It's like, man, it's probably not nice to trick someone that you're actually, you are actually a robot rather than a human. I would kind of just like end with the, I'm slightly more interested and or worried about like the, how it kind of like changes like regular human conversations and like how it changes like the regular social, like personal dynamics. On that, our household, we've had the Echo since 2014, right when it came out. And now we're at the point that first thing when we wake up, ask what's the weather going to be like today? Even what time is it? We don't even have clocks up in the house anymore. We just ask. Alexa, what time is it over and over again? And I've noticed my wife and me both, we speak to Alexa as though it's a human. I mean, we ask, even though it's structured questions, the way we approach it is in a very human fashion. We have a one and a half year old daughter who's not really speaking that much yet, but anytime we say Alexa, she looks right over at the speaker. And I definitely am very curious to see how it will affect her. But like, will kids be able to tell the difference that between a machine and a human? Will they care at all if there's a difference? Will they care? I don't think so. I do not think they care. I think you always like hear about like the kids are mean, right? Because like they like young kids, like they do not really have the sense that other people are also humans with like feelings, emotions, all that stuff. Like those are kind of like skills and or abilities that you develop over time. Like some of it is probably like your brain like develops, you kind of understand it. Some of it is actually taught to you. So I do not think your kid understands the difference at this age 
you know, I'm not a child development expert, but I do not think they probably understand the difference whether or not there's a person on the other side of it or the person inside it for all she cares, right? There's like a genie inside that Alexa thing. Uh, I don't know if you caught the announcement where enough people were worried about the fact that Alexa and Google Assistant was teaching their kids to be just like, uh, like not be kind because you don't have to say please do these things, right? And like this bubbled up as a, enough of a concern that like I think Alexa actually has a mode where it will only respond if it recognizes if it's a kid and um, like you have to say please. I mean, it is kind of still like I don't want to become like too like tech lashy. It is still kind of like worries me that like now you have to say please rather than actually humanizing what that please represents. So where do you see something like Google Duplex, what positive changes do you think it's going to bring to? I think there's part of me that do feels like uh, if this is some like labor that no one wants to do, it is okay to automate this to a certain extent, right? Um, so for example, a lot of the call centers, um, so I used to work at Uber. Uh, one of the things that I you know, kind of like worked around, like worked with is um, uh, customer support tickets is like a big, expense, right? So for example, there are a lot of also cases where people just like complain that the Uber showed them $9.10 and it cost them like $9.30. Okay, like then someone creates a support ticket. So what they did is, hey, like this thing, you know, like you go into the Uber app and uh, you press like, hey, like support, like, you know, help, like, re- like my trip took longer. And then we press and then you select which trip you're complaining about, you have like a problem with. And then what happens in the background is like, hey, like it checks, like what was this person coded and like what was like charged. And if it's like within like certain like variants, hey, like if you're complaining about like five bucks, like, I mean, obviously the machine doesn't care. There's an algorithm. I don't know how complicated it is anymore. This is to some degree not as different than Google duplexes, right? Like we're just kind of like bringing what was like analog into the digital world. And then like I kind of like talk, mentioned like analog digital divide. So what like Google does is, um, hey, like you guys do not have the APIs. Like we'll, one way to look at it is like, hey, we'll build it for you. Now people can like book tickets or book appointments, you know, book restaurants, whatever, without you doing anything. This is the positive view. And the other person's like, well, if you don't want to do it, like we'll do it for you, like kicking and screaming. Uh, you know, like, I do think that Google would have the good uh, sense to not like push this on other people without their like knowledge. But uh, I do think that it's a good thing. I do think that it's overall a good Wait, thing. but in terms of Google having the good sense to not push this on other people, I mean, did you get the feeling at all watching that demo given, as you said, tech lashy, I like that. Um, I mean, the current climate around privacy, deception, these are the very issues that are completely facing Google, Facebook, all the tech giants. Yet Google's entire demo was highlighting deception. What were they thinking? Are they just missing this completely? Are they going? I mean, I know they came out and already said that they're going to now have a disclaimer for every, you know, any kind of interaction that you to notify you that you will be talking to a robot. But what were they thinking? Yeah, um, good question. Uh, I don't know. Were they thinking? I mean, I, that's mean. I shouldn't say that. But uh, I mean, like, obviously, like, hindsight is like twenty twenty. So, you know, I'm sure like our listeners know that too. But uh, I mean, like, 
you know, I worked in like public product launches, like at Uber and other places. Um, and it's always kind of like you draw a line, like you always know that some products won't be liked by other people. Uh, but I do think, you know, some products won't be liked by other people. Like how do we launch this? And like there have been launches that have been part of that didn't go well. Uh, well, I mean, you know, like let's how to put this like kindly. For example, there was this, like uh, discussion about uh, when Google would, like when Uber was like changing the way how it's uh, used like uh, location information, right? So like on kind of going into technical, there were like three ways that Uber app like keeps you like keeps track of the rider's location, right? Like one is like uh, always, like as soon, as long as you have the app installed and like gave the permission once, the app has the ability to check your location. So that's option one. Wait, so, sorry. Uh, I mean, so like yeah. there, so like on the iOS level, right? On the, yeah. So iOS used to give apps three levels. Like one is always, one is never, and the third is only one using the app, right? So like, for example, you can imagine like for Foursquare, like always could kind of make sense, right? Like they kind of want to know where you are at all times or for like find my friends or like app for your kid. Like you do yeah. think, so never also kind of makes sense. It's like you just don't want Uber to know or any app. So while using the app is like what I just felt like most people were like well comfortable with, right? So, so what happened was like Uber was like removing the option for of the while only while using the app, right? So I do not think we handled that well. I do not think that we kind of like made the case that always is a better option for users. So the argument was that, for example, uh, like Uber wanted to kind of like keep track not of like any time where you are. Um, but like, you know, like, for example, you request a ride and then like the car is like coming, like, hey, are you actually like making your way to the ride, right? Because like Uber's business is not only like keeping the riders happy, keeping the drivers happy, right? Uh, so that's like one argument. There are also like arguments about like, um, like a lot of people, for a lot of people, like the whole point of like Uber is like, for example, I saw this in Turkey often, the whole, the, a lot of riders like Uber because they are tracked. Right, if you're like a woman, like you just don't do not want like you just feel more comfortable when you know that this thing keeps track of your location, so that like if some something bad happens, like there's a record of it, or the fact that everyone knows that it's being tracked, it's like discourages people from like being like bad actors, right? So anyway, but like we did not make this case properly. We just felt like uh, I think the way that was done is um, just like put like a big like alert view. Like this is gonna change, like it or not. Next, like. Like this is not a way to do it. And then uh, a couple of the people that I talked to at the time for like the Yelp product managers, product managers at Yelp, and they said, yeah, you guys just like, like Yelp had kind of had the same discussion. I might be kind of like hand-waving it. I forgot some of the technical details, but like when they were making that switch, going from two options to three options to two, they kind of had this like UI to like present people, like this is how you select, like these are like, like this is what you get out of it instead of this, like big legal text, right? So like what I was trying to say is like it is hard to um, kind of like always ace, like always guess what kind of backlash you're gonna get, but at the same time like this is what product managers get paid for like it is their job to kind of like read the tea leaves like read the room as they say. Um, so anyway, this is a long digression, but what I was gonna say is it to me it seems like they threw caution into the wind, and what I mean by that is it would have been super simple, very basic things. Just like Sundar Pichai just saying, hey, this is like a very edited conversation, but like 
you know, the part about like what the machine said was true, but like we edited what happened on the thing. Uh, you know, they talked about like they could have just said, hey, like we had this conversation, like this was done with consent, so we're not stepping on like two party consent laws or anything like that. Wait, uh, sorry, what are two party consent laws? Uh, two party consent laws are, uh, and I am not a lawyer, yeah. uh, but two party consent laws are uh, basically. I think, for example, in California, you cannot record a phone conversation without both parts consenting to it. So this is like an interesting thing, right? Like technically, there's nothing preventing you from doing it, right? But obviously, if you do it, like I don't know if it's illegal or it's not admissible in court or both. But like we have this like regulation around, which is a very basic technical problem, like technical capability, right? So like there was like another thing that I didn't like. It was unclear if Google would have violated. two-party consent laws if they had this conversation in California, right? So they, so looking into it, like thinking about it, A, they did talk to the restaurant owners before that they were going to do this and they got their consent. Then they didn't violate the law principle, whatever. Or B, they didn't and then they violated the law. No one knows. Like, we don't know. Uh, so like this would have, this part of the conversation could have been avoided entirely. It, Would have taken a bit of the magic, I think. Like if people knew that, uh, like this restaurant owner um, kind of like knew that this conversation was going to take place, and they kind of like played around, played into it. Like, would it have taken some of the magic away? Yes, but I don't think it would have taken too much of it. So yeah, I think to answer your question, I do think that they did throw like throw caution into the wind because. Like the way to avoid so much of the criticism would have been so simple, so low risk, and like consent part aside, just like telling people like, "Hey, we edited the parts." I think people have still been quite impressed, and like so much of the backlash could have been avoided. Uh, I don't know how much of the backlash changed their plans. I do think that um, the problems were problems with it are so obvious, and like I'm kind of being generous to Google here. The problems with this thing are so obvious that they would not have uh, missed a lot of the problems. But uh, like at least like the all the drama, like Axios, John Gruber stuff, could have been easily avoided. Wait. So one thing going back, the question of is it real or possible? One thing I'm curious about is if it's not real today, what will get it to the point that it's real? And what I mean by that is. Can it only be a company like Google that has such a massive data set that's able to actually create something that's trained enough to be able to respond to edge cases like that? And then, if that is the case, do they end up with some kind of power that even if it does end up with just some app developer being able to download a library and integrating it into their app, it's still Google. It's still. I mean, you have to pay Google, submit your data to Google. Uh, I do think that so. I kind of like read about this after like they did the demo, and I, I get a sense that uh, the parts about like this like back and forth like conversation part was actually like more like rockier than they presented. Like a lot of the time, it like like it works sometime, but like not all the time. So that to me suggests that they do need a lot of conversations. Like they do need a lot of uh, like. Sample conversations to kind of like train their model so they can have these like natural sounding conversations. So I do think that there's part of it that is going to be at Google's, uh, like only Google will be able to do it for a while. The other part, the like 
speech sense, like synthesizing, I do think that that's going to be like commodity. So, you know, like that's like what I was alluding to when I first said like that speech thing will be like a library that you'll be able to import to your app like a couple of years. I, guarantee, I mean, I don't guarantee you, but I suspect so. So like, you know, like, you know, fake sounding voice that is going to be commodity. Uh, conversation ability, that's not going to be a commodity soon. But I do think that, uh, you know, maybe like the, like the thing about it is that like if that thing also like becomes common enough that humans might start adjusting their conversations to uh, kind of like, like the robots. So we start sounding like robots as humans, which would lower the bar for other people to create similar sounding conversation engines. Or this is called like conversation engines. Uh, so I think like I like I don't want to be like hedging my question too much, but I do think that uh, like speech part, commodity, other part at Google's hands, but not as long as um, I think they suspect also like by you know I don't know the time frames. Like what I mean by that is like for example like Apple has done a lot of uh, like on device processing. You know like I've been like pleasantly surprised by how much like iOS device can do like machine learning e stuff just on the device without talking to the server. And there's also like uh, other technologies like coming available. Like I do think that there's some sort of a push towards being able to do that kind of stuff on the device uh, and like making it like more commodity, like insert some like ML kits, machine learning kits in the iOS parlance, whatever. Um, so yeah, I I mean, I don't know how much of a power this would give Google in terms of like commerce. Um, you know, like Google is not without competitors. Like they have Amazon, they have like Microsoft. Um, you know, I do not think like Microsoft is like too far behind in terms of like what they can do on the conversation engine side. Uh, and God knows, I mean, I don't know much about Amazon, but they are also probably not too far behind. Actually, and to get a bit dystopian or kind of move in that direction, do you think, so the duplex, the ums and the ahs were kind of like the the piece de reason, what's it called again? You know, like the highlight for everyone. Um, and is that something that should be there? Or should we actually remove that? And because you made an interesting point where you said, will our speech move more towards like a formalized structure like robots? Will robots, as they're moving more towards humans, do we meet in the middle somewhere? <gasps> Uh, I suspect so. I do think that they were kind of like converging into this like uh, more robotic than we talk and then probably more humanistic than the computers that we used to, to have with. Um, so I do think that it's converging and I do think that that's already happening. You know, like I use Google inboxes uh, on my Gmail account, like the quick reply thing quite a bit. And I do sometimes like worry like that just like, a lot of my responses at least start with that stuff. And like, I suspect a lot of people respond back to me with that stuff too. So maybe it's not, this is like merging, right? We're not like replacing, we're just like adding capability. That's like the positive way of looking at it uh, since we're doing MBAs now. Um, yeah, I still find it weird on Inbox Compose when they add exclamation points as though that they're trying to bring some kind of levity or light to your email. Yeah. And bring so, personality. Um, yeah, it, it, it's, yeah, I mean, but at the same time, it's useful, you know, like when I started using it, like when I first thought about it, it's like, oh, this is such a you know, hack. And then I found so many emails that it just worked with. I just started using it. 
Uh, maybe I'm just kind of you know not talking like not worrying about the downsides of it too much. I do. I should say that like I do have multiple uh, email accounts, and like the, my Gmail, the public one, is slightly more like public. Like I like I obviously keep that email like secure as possible, but I do have another personal email that I do more some of my more personal stuff on. Uh, anyways, again, going back to it, like should it use those ums and whatever, like the filler sounds, I do think that they should. Like it does kind of help that other person on the other side feel more comfortable talking, I think. So that is also important, right? Like um, the fact that this like conversation is happening, like it's it's between like robot and a human. I do think that it's like robot's responsibility to kind of keep the human happy. But where, okay, like, okay, let's... <laughs> Why are you laughing? That's true, right? Like you, it's you, the robot's responsibility to keep the human happy. Well, it's the human who designed the robot's responsibility to kind of keep it all, you know, like comfortable, right? Like I do think like the, the person who's taking the appointment would be able to do it if the robot sounded, I, I'm Mark, whatever. Like, should it be duplicitous? Should it act, is duplicitous the right word? Yeah. It's duplex, interesting. Um, Like, should it actually go out of its way to like, uh, like conceal its identity, probably not. Should it go out of its way to keep the conversation light? Yes. So uh, Ranjan, you work in media, you have like a newsletter generating company, and then you're like the business person in this podcast. So here's my question. Should we be creating machines and artificial intelligence to create like media content? So as this podcast is called The Margins, let me start by talking about margins and profitability. I think that's what drives a lot of the conversation. Okay, I'm going to run a concept by you. I've been trying to flesh out a little bit. So again, our company, we generate newsletters for clients. We also have experimented a lot with using AI and machine learning to generate content. The other day at a conference, this lady, she reads one of our newsletters, is a big fan, and said... I would love a feature where you could actually have a robot or something read out loud the newsletter. Just something automated that would allow me to listen to the newsletter. So our team, we start getting very excited. We're thinking, oh, this could be a pretty easy feature. We had been playing with Amazon Polly, which is their text-to-speech API. And we're like, oh, we can just plug this in, take the text from the newsletter, and have it output and be read aloud. So we did that. It worked. I mean, it's one of those things where it was functional, but it was a crappy product. Like, I would never waste 10 minutes of my day listening to it. And then we start, you know, getting excited. We're thinking, oh, well, maybe if you add two periods, we notice it adds a little bit more of a pause. Or if you add commas in certain places, and we can come up with an entire syntax around text that would be read out loud better. And then someone made a pretty good point. They said, I can just get some college student who speaks English fluently and pay them a little bit of money. And if they have a decent sounding microphone and in, you know, 10 minutes, they can read out this newsletter. And that would be an infinitely better product or more engaging or interesting thing than that robotically generated product. This had me thinking about the idea. Okay, I'm going to call it the marginal return on human input. Okay. Uh, M-R-O-H-I, you're starting your MBA program right now, so you're going to have to start speaking like this, maybe like Mrohi, M-R-O-H-I. But basically the idea is 
take like how many additional inputs of human expertise and time does it take to increase the product quality in a certain way? You know, you could pay someone $10 for 20 minutes of just reading into a microphone and, you know, they would make the on the fly adjustments and verbal intonations and everything that's required because it's a person reading. And that would take a virtually unusable product and make it at least pretty good or slightly engaging. Um, so a little bit of cost, a huge return. And then obviously you can start investing a lot more money, producing professionally, getting it NPR level, but that the returns and how much better a product it gets, you know, it starts kind of diminishing. Mm -hmm. So then we start thinking about, okay, how does this apply to other types of media? So text, we get a lot of people interested. And again, we've done a lot of testing with summarization. Take an article, try to auto-generate summaries. It works. Again, it's functional, but it's just not that good. And we would have thought at this point the technology should be there that should make it good, but it's not. Okay, so I have I have two questions. One is this. So basically, the Mirohi is about how much, so I just, I'm like reiterating so I understand it. So how much more human efforts would it take to make this useful? So basically what I'm trying to say is like Mirohi, your uh, new grand groundbreaking measure. So it's about how human input makes this, like how much value human input adds to this thing. But like your baseline content is like auto-generated. Is that what it is? Yes, yeah. The baseline is something that's completely automated. And then how much additional cost or human input would it take to actually make it good? That's working under the assumption that in content production, which I think is a safe assumption, human content is better. The other question is that, so I always read about there's already auto-generated content we read in the newspaper. And I think the examples that people give are like sports news or like financial news, these like excerpts like you sometimes like see, I read that some of that stuff is already other generated and has been for years. I'm kind of like surprised when you say that, like we tried it and it didn't work. So am I wrong? You probably, there's a lot of media coverage of media about AI driven journalism or stories and where it works. And I think there's a, there's a, one of the big Chinese media companies uh, during the Olympics was like talking about, they produced like 12,000 pieces of 12,000 articles using AI with structured content, it works. So earnings reports, sports scores, the weather, for these things, it works. When I ask Alexa what the Celtic score was, and she repeats it back to me, if I paid Bob Costas to come and sit down and tell me in person the Celtic score, the actual difference in value or quality of that interaction is there's not that big of a jump in value. So for those things, if I want to read about an earnings report and all I, I really care about is pulling a couple of numbers from that, a machine is perfect for that kind of stuff. So I guess my next question is that, do you think that, like, do you not see, to my engineer eyes, this is obvious where this is heading. Like, do you not see the types of content you can auto-generate, just get bigger and bigger? I mean, I think this goes back to the kind of duplex timeline question. And I honestly have been convinced that we should be further along than we are. But all the text ever written has already been available pretty easily for Google to train 
their NLP and their summarization technologies. It's still not creating actually, you know, thoughtful, engaging, original insights and text. Again, structured data, it works fine. Okay. Well, maybe I'm, I'm sort of spe- skeptical that it hasn't advanced as much. I do suspect that like it works better in like short stuff. Uh, I do worry like I've never actually tried it with like long form text, so maybe that's like where it kind of like sort of breaks. But I do think that technology is coming along. Uh, well, I mean, th- I, I think it's coming in time, and I think every media executive obviously is praying it comes soon because obviously that just means lower cost for them. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, you're a media executive, yeah. right? <laughs> uh, executive, <laughs> loose term. Um, the positive spin on this is this, you know, if you take out all the mundane rote work, that kind of stuff should be able to be done by a machine and should get better and better at even understanding. Because, you know, like uh, Google has Google Clips and their AI, and it does a pretty good job if you use Google Photos at pulling out what is a good photo. So all that kind of like manual laborious work should be replaced which ideally would free up creative people to actually be able to do creative things. That's obviously the bull case. While thinking about this like podcast and talking to people around us, like one thing that I, like on a meta level that worries me slightly, look at how much we talk about like a single company, like Google, YouTube, Duplex. But maybe what we should be slightly worried about is so much of the advancements in technology kind of like being concentrated by like a couple of companies, A, couple of US companies, B, a couple companies in California, and like C, a couple companies that actually have like similar cultures too. And then now we have these like all these like contents generated and or like mediated by like AIs developed in like California. What does that mean for the global like cultural diversity? That's like something to keep in mind. But like, I don't think we should kind of like separate out the ethics into like, or let's discuss the com- like technologies and have an ethics afterthought. Like I think like ethics should be like woven into these like discussions like early on. Let's kind of like talk about the another like business uh, side of things. So this like whole really like weird industry of auto-generated YouTube videos. Like do you know what I'm talking about? I don't know if you've ever come across like the other day actually I I searched there's a new episode of Westworld. Uh, there was this incredible scene at the end where they actually do this like. Asian music cover of a Wu-Tang song, Cream. And uh, so I go to look up, because I was basically just looking for that clip. The top result was this weird dystopian, it's reading out a news article from another source. I don't know, just some like mainstream news article. And then using the text, it pulls stock images and then creates this like two minute video of a news article that is crap. I mean, it makes sense you can churn out hundreds and hundreds of those videos. That one, when I searched Westworld Wu-Tang was the number one search result. They're getting some ad revenue out of that. And this is where it's, I mean, it's interesting because like ethics should not be an afterthought, but I also think in technology conversations, business models should not be an afterthought. And that's where we get screwed a lot of the time is that why would someone not do that on YouTube the way it's built? There was this uh, article called Something is Wrong on the Internet uh, by James Bridle. He got really dug into this weird, scary genre of videos that are AI generated and geared towards kids. And what they do is 
they take whatever the top search terms are. So there's one, it basically took like Ella from Frozen, Peppa Pig, the Paw Patrol. I now have a one and a half year old kid, so I'm starting to learn about these things. Mashes all the characters into one video. And so it gets up very high in the search results, but then it has them all slaughtered at the end. That is obviously not the innocent side, but there's more and more of that content coming into this as well. So your argument, if I'm hearing this correctly, is that YouTube's business model, where they kind of like basically make any, uh, they don't really have a preference for contents, so they just want content at all costs. So their business model encourages creation of this kind of like cheap content. You know, tying back to our podcast, The Margin, there was actually, I don't know if you read, like Hunter Walk, who is a VC, uh, he had a, he like had a blog post about like, like so much of the problems, you know, like the take lash, like fake news and stuff can be maybe attributable to these companies' addiction to like the high margins. All they do is just like host this content and like serve ads against this. There's like no fixed cost. They can allocate over like billions of users. There's practically no like variable costs to like uploading a video. So maybe like switch gears just a bit. I was reading the other day that, for example, like Stranger Things, have you watched it on Netflix? Yeah. Uh, Did you like it? Loved it. Okay. I loved it too. Like Stranger Things checks the boxes of people like us, like millennials so well, right? And like, this is not like hidden, right? Like when the House of Cards came about, like Netflix was coming out and saying, hey, like we just looked at what kind of stuff people really liked. And then we just like called up Sony and they said that, hey, we need like a political thriller. It needs to have this, this, this. Do you see where I'm going with this? But, but so that you is, can... that's good. That's, you know, using data and data science and understanding to actually improve an end product. I'm sure there was some truth to it that they were, they didn't have to experiment as much because they're able to understand what people wanted already. But if it creates a beautiful, incredible, engaging show, I think that's a good thing. But also remember, there's a lot of bad Netflix shows coming out. So, I don't know, like there's more and more. And I understand their entire strategy right now is kind of throw, like investing a ton, seeing what sticks. But which is also a reminder that, yes, uh, House of Cards was data driven. But do you remember what their first show was? It was a Swedish it was one of the guys from The Sopranos based in Sweden. No one remembers that. That was the first show that came out, and they had all the data before that as well. When the data works, it's a great story, but we're not at the point where the data always works. Okay. I just wonder if Netflix left some money on the table with House of Cards. What I mean by that is, you know, like House of Cards, like super high production value. Don't you think that they could have had a scripted show that is basically hits all the you know the checkboxes, House of Cards hits, but like not as good. But so this is exactly, exactly my point, is that it would not have been House of Cards without that. Can we get more and more efficient in terms of using data to predict what people would want and then lower the marginal return on human input and be able to bring down that cost to create the same quality product? I think we should be moving in that direction. Yeah. But again... It couldn't have been completely automatic without Kevin Spacey and Robin Wright Penn and all these like incredible actors and that production value. It would not have been the same. Yeah. So the reason why I ask it that way, um, like the way Spotify works is that it kind of like flattens the music. Sometimes like all you want is like music that just 
sounds pleasant or a certain way. Like basically, if you like flattened all the content, they will like it's music. Though you don't really care. Like you just want like a music like hat like birthday playlist or like work music. You don't really care what comes comes out as long as it comes out. But like that also means that uh, people are ready to pay for like more good content. So I guess what I'm trying to like connect it with the House of Cards is uh, like it makes like and this is like the like the bull case for automation of content creation is that like now. Uh, like the the easy stuff, like the lower stuff is like automated, like the human touch, the part that has the highest uh, morohi, uh, are more important. I I think I'm like interpreting correctly. So what that means is that like it really empowers the good creators. Like if you are a good creator of good content, you know more power to you because the the cheap stuff will be taking care of the machines. That's exactly. I mean, and that is the bull case, but I do think it's kind of moving that direction. And like, as you're saying, yes, Spotify, that's another area in music where the entire middle portion of the curve is going to just become probably more and more generic. And as you said, some kind of machine optimized or machine created that's like perfect for a work setting or perfect for trying to go to sleep. I think what we're talking about here is there's AI created content, and then there's data informed content. Okay. What I mean by that is it's just, again, it's house of cards. It's using technology to help you create something better. But what does that do for you know, generic reckoning. creators? Just creators who create contents are not expecting to make, you know, like billions out of it, but like make a living. It just seems like their lives would be harder now. Well, I think I think that's exactly where the problem is and that for so many of these kind of things you will have to be great. Otherwise there's just no work. The automation will happen on the lower end of the spectrum and things like web copy or writing a press release will get optimized or automated. That's the way things will go and I do think there's certainly impacts and issues that are going to kind of arise from that. It, it, the skills that you need to learn are different. And the skills, especially someone going into media, are very different. And like, it's not just being able to write words. It, it, again, it's using technology to give, make you better and give you an advantage, I think becomes a lot more important right now. At some point, the ethical issues we discussed kind of tie into the labor issues when like so much labor is at stake. It is an ethical problem. And that, you know, you like at some point, you know, you imagine like people talk about like coal politics because the coal jobs are going away, creator jobs are going away. Like, what is going to be the Spotify politics? <laughs> you know, I don't know how many people, you know, are in the creative endeavors. Well, I, I, the, I like that, the Spotify politics. But I mean, the music industry has been seeing that for a long time now. But I think you did make an interesting point that I hadn't really been, I hadn't really been incorporating music into this whole thought process before. But, but yeah, on the lower end, the kind of filler music probably moves to completely automated. And there's, I'm guessing, been a good amount of money and work even in that side of the equation yeah. that will get automated. Yeah. The, my point tying cold politics slash Spotify politics was rather that these kind of stuff have like, you know, second order, third order effects, right? Like, like moving coal jobs to India and China, like gave to certain kind of behaviors, right? Um, and then the idea is that like when we automate and all the like when we automate, we AIUFI mediates content via machine learning and everything. Like there's gonna be like other effects too, uh, and it'd probably be good to have those effects in mind, not just like 
go at it at all costs. I think actually this this kind of reminds me of one part of the uncanny valley definition that we had left out from the beginning. And when we get to that point where upheaval becomes more of an issue is, so the uncanny valley, it's a valley, it's a trough, it's the bad part of things. It's when robots do not appear like humans and there's something slightly off about them. But then like the original kind of graph that was created, there's an uptick, you know, things move to the point where the robots likeness of as humans actually becomes identical or non-identifiable. And yeah, I mean, I guess that's kind of where it seems at least you think we're headed, right? So, I mean, I think on the perception side, that's where we're headed, but what it means for like economy, labor and everything else, you know, I think those are still uh, up in the air. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's a, that's a kind of a good spot to kind of end this conversation, but it's been interesting. It's been interesting to hear about your uh, take on a media side of things, and I hope I provided some good thoughts on the technology side of things. Certainly. All right, thank you very much.